Pilot Boys in the building. Welcome to the Pilot Boys podcast, where you'll get the real on all things sports, music, and pop culture. I am Mecca Don here with my co-host V. What's up, everybody? Today is January 23rd, 2020. Thank you guys for tuning in. I know you could be anywhere in the world, but you're here with us. On today's show, we will talk about the music streaming wars happening with Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, and Roddy, Roddy Rich, and whether it's manipulation or fair game. We will also talk with our resident college football insider, Zach Smith, about the return of Kerry Coombs to Ohio State, the impact of the postseason bowl games like the Senior Bowl for players, and about what makes Patrick Mahomes so great. Finally, we will talk about the falling iguanas, the coronavirus, Tom Brady, Greg Schiano, Wendy Williams, and more. Shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Remember now that our $5 and up Patreon subscribers will get our episodes on Wednesdays a night early. These donations help keep our show going. If you want to help keep us on air, you can donate at www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys Podcast. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Let's go. Where the Pilot Boys at? Pilot Boys, we get on up. We don't fly, boys, we get up. Our next guest is a super producer out of Ohio, now living in New York City, who has produced for some of the hottest artists in the world, including Lil Yachty, Juice World, Yo Gotti, Maxo Cream, Burna Boy, and many, many more. Please welcome to the show, Mitch Mula. What's up, Mitch? Yo, what's up, family? How you doing? Good, man. Good, man. Glad to have you on the show, man. I see, you know, you've been doing your thing. Obviously, you and I know each other, um, got connected through music. You've produced records for me, including Nip and Tuck, which is a, is a fan favorite. And, uh, you know, I've been watching you do your thing. V's been watching you do your thing. We're really impressed with how your career's been going. Ohio boy uh, showing out in this big, big-ass industry. <laughs> you feel me? Right. You represent. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, um, you know, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on the show uh, is because there's there's been kind of a lot of talk recently in the last you know couple of weeks about streaming and these streaming wars, you know, with for example Roddy Rich having the number one album and then Justin Bieber kind of trying to fight that by telling his fans to go stream his music overnight and then you know him losing and then Selena Gomez getting involved and and t- telling her fans the same thing and then her saying she's going to all these different stores to b- go buy her album. And then Roddy Rich kind of trolling both of them by telling people like to go, you know, stream their albums. And so we wanted to talk, kind of get in a discussion about music streaming and, you know, whether what these guys are doing is manipulation or fair game. And V did some research on it, had some interesting thoughts. So we'll start there and then we'll jump into a bigger conversation. Well, obviously, you know, just to kind of to educate our listeners, I mean, music, the music industry is is rapidly changing, you know, went through a downturn with Napster and the piracy trying to figure out like how do we make money off of this when piracy is so rampant it seems like right. in 2015 2016 is when the big streaming players came in came in and and kind of rapidly changed the industry right like i think that's mm-hmm. that's i think they account for about 75% of the revenue now um that's generated by the music industry <laughs> is generated by streaming services so the rapid 
you know, obviously this is great for artists. This is great for everyone, for the music industry to actually be making money so that artists are continually able to, able to thrive. Now, right. you know, with that said, like, how much of this do you think benefits someone like you, one who's, who's coming up, and how much of this is controlled still by big labels and these big streaming services? Like, the, my, my curiosity is, how does the money work, you know? And you have experience with this. How is the money actually broken down, and do you think it's fair um, what the artists and, and producers and the actual talent is being paid in the current system. Um, so to touch on the initial point that Mecca spoke on um, about Justin Bieber, Selena Gomez, um, I think the fact that they're doing that and going these links to, to you know, have their music streamed at this rate, it shows that there's definitely something in the water. Like it's a term that we use in football when somebody like basically get exposed, there's blood in the water, so the sharks gonna come. So. Saying that, I'm really saying um, if they're going these lengths to do these things about, you know, making an album or making an album go number one or streaming, it shows you the power of streaming and, you know, what it can really do for independent artists. Mm -hmm. So that's that thing. You asked me if it was manipulation or if it was fair game. It's obvious. I think to me, it's obvious it's a bit of both. It's obviously fair game because there's no rules um, in this type of engagement. Nothing against the rules about what they're doing. But it is manipulation because they are, you know, doing things to change the course of what the natural order is. So right. it's both, but I'm not saying that manipulation in a derogatory way. It's, they're just doing what they feel that, you know, what they need to do or what they can do. I think it's dope um, what Roddy's doing, too, because Roddy, I don't think Roddy has really promoted the box as much as they promoted their projects. And I might be um, mistaken. I'm not really... Like, you know, I don't really be on Twitter and Instagram, like, too much other than interacting with fans and, you know, just my, you know, things I do on there. But I think Roddy, only things I've seen from Roddy, not even on, like, the defend Roddy, but I've seen him tweet, go stream Justin Bieber Yummy right. and go stream Selena Gomez. But then, like, when he did that, now I'm just seeing, like, a million trailers of his video. You know what I'm saying? Right. So I think it's cool what everybody's doing. I think it really just, you know, if you're looking at this from, a signed artist perspective, independent artist perspective, it just shows you the power in streaming and, you know, what what these people are willing to do and they're, like, you know, arguably at the top of the game in respects to what they do. They're doing this thing. Right. You know, it, if it, I have a song, I should do, you know, I have a song, anybody independent has a song, you should do, not saying the same things, but it's money there because they're doing it and they have, you know, made millions off of this already. Well, that's one thing that V, v had said to me in, uh, in an earlier conversation which is that kind of like when new things pop up, right? The mm-hmm. kind of the first people involved figure figure things out and, and get all the money before regulations come in and all of a sudden the game changes. So it seems to me like, like cryptocurrency. Yeah, exactly, right? Just like crypto. And and it looks like, you know, that's kind of what you this is almost their responsibility, right? If there's a lot of money to be had out here and what you're doing is not yeah. illegal, right? Then now it just comes down to whether or not you have a certain level of kind of moral compass that's going to prevent you from doing that. But if you have shareholders right. and executives and managers and all kinds of other people who are eating off of this, and all you have to do is put on Twitter, hey, go stream my song overnight, and that's not illegal, then you know that's probably what yeah. you should do, especially if it's going to f- affect the bottom line. But let me ask you a question about streaming specifically because uh-huh. I think a lot of people don't really know it. They just know, oh, I like this song. I got Spotify. I got Apple Music. 
but they don't really know how it affects the artists. So what are like right. actually the differences between the streaming services and how do artists, like what type of money can an artist actually see from a stream? So from my understanding of streaming, um, every um, streaming platform has a different, I guess, payout rate. And that payout mm -hmm. rate varies based on whether it's a freemium account, a paid account, um, you know, those type of things. So it's really no like set in stone number of, oh, one stream equals 0.0084. You know, I, I know that's like the number floating around about Spotify. Right. But um, from the conversation I had with the people who handle, you know, my admin or other people's admin or for the YouTube monetization, there's no like set in stone number. It just like, it all fluctuates. Right. But there is a chunk of money. I mean, even if you put in one of those algorithms and, you know, multiply it by the amount of streams, you can see potentially what's there to be made. And obviously, you know, label gets a chunk. The artist gets a chunk. But it's really like, it's not something I would stand on and say like, yeah, you can make 100000 off of this. Like, it really depends on, you know, what your control is at that record. What percentage of the record do you own? Is it a sample? Is it not a sample? You know, I mean, you know, it just, right. it's just, it's, it's a variable type of thing. So, but it is money to be made, you know, especially if you're independent and you, because I think the problem that independent artists, producers alike, face is just the lack of knowledge when it comes to, you know, the money. Where is it coming from and how to go get it? Right. Because for a long time, I was under the impression that to collect my streams and collect my YouTube, I had to be signed to a publishing deal, which is anything but the truth. So when you figure out that there are companies that these labels are going to, like the labels are collecting their streams themselves, from what I know, like they're going having hiring companies like Create Music Group to go handle YouTube monetization. Okay, right. cool. Let me go set up a partnership directly with Create Music Group or Song Trust or one of these companies, and Harry Fox Agency, because you know if you streaming, if you get a hundred streams, a thousand streams. There's money to be made, right. you know. It's like a, it's like a false stigma that people in the music industry have that basically you got to be broke until you get a hit. That's anything further from the truth. Right. I'm not going to test it. That firsthand experience. It seems like independent artists have it, have it, have it great. But it seems like also what's happening here from a streaming and publishing standpoint. I think I read that. The, when it comes down to the artists and producers, once everything is filtered down, they're only seeing 10 to 15% of their publishing through streaming. Whereas with radio, you're getting 100%. So my concern, again, is, is is this a system of exploitation, again, where the artists aren't getting their fair due? And it seems like you're saying that if if you understand the business, it doesn't matter. You 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 can figure out a way to make money even as an independent artist. Um, yeah, so in reference to what you said about the 15, 10%, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. Um, but I, like, in terms of it being fair, um, you know, since we, this whole producer rights and artist rights thing has just kind of bubbled within the past five years, with anything in regards to rights, you know, the time span that we've been talking about is obviously not fair if it's being spoken about. You know what I'm saying? So it's definitely a problem there. Um, I don't think it's fair. The compensation rates are fair um, based on, you know, what a company can essentially make off of it and, you know, a label. And I, the, the way the the way the business is modeled, I don't think it's really modeled. Well, I even don't think it's obviously not modeled um, for the creators to eat right? Um, as much as as much as the labels do. Like you look at a lot of guys contracts or whatever the case is, they own like 14 to 17 percent of the master like. That's obviously not fair, but that's what you signed up for. So it's really just like that's fair game. You know what I'm saying? So I think holding on to your independence is, is 
is important until you understand the business enough to, you know, take a two hundred thousand dollar advance or the or publishing agreement or whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? Well, one thing, one thing I did want to ask. I know we talked about this just a little bit earlier, but you and I, you know, like in two thousand and eighteen and nineteen, um, no, mm-hmm. two thousand eighteen. When we were able to kind of work in the studio, and we used to have some of these conversations about about streaming, and we would talk about which which platform gives the best payouts. Now, I know that you said that it, it varies, it depends on a lot of different things. But if you did have to say, mm-hmm. like, you know, this these are the top three. If you want to, ha- if you want somebody to listen to music, these are the top three where you have the best chance of making the most money. What, what, which platforms would you say are the best for that? Um, I mean, like you could just Google. Music streaming payout rates, and I think the top ones are Tidal. Um, I think Napster is like the biggest one. Mm. Napster, Tidal, and um, I think Xbox or some shit like something like that. But uh, uh, I don't have a preference. These companies aren't paying me to promote, you know, promote their services. <laughs> right. So whatever you got on your phone, go stream my music. You know what I'm saying? Right. So whatever right. you rocking with, rock with that because the money coming back anyway. Um, especially for independent artists that controls the master. Now, if you're an independent artist and you're producing your records, then now you're in a whole different category because now that's 100% of the pie. They're going to take their cut and that's that. You can figure out the rights. You're dealing with producer rights, artist rights, just ownership um, and yeah. fair payout rates. We're doing. I think the it was just a bill that was passed. I'm not too familiar with it, but I think it's in, it is in regards to that thing. So, uh, yeah, whatever you got, stream the music. Right. Yeah, and in regards to title, this is something that was interesting that I read is they said the title is actually under criminal investigation now um, for falsely <laughs> exaggerating plays of Beyonce's Lemonade and Kanye's Life of Pablo. And I think they said that mm-hmm. because of the artificial fake plays that it actually impacted the the payouts for artists, the smaller artists, right? Because I guess it's it's the algorithm is based on prorated total number of spins and, and they calculate all artists. How do you feel about when you hear stuff like that, when you hear a big streaming service like Tidal that supposedly is paying you out more but is manipulating the system and taking advantage for it for obvious artists that have affiliation? And same thing with Apple Music. I think Chance the Rapper has a deal with them. Drake has a deal with them that obviously creates creates leverage over over smaller struggling artists. So, um can you repeat what what are they under criminal investigation about again? For um let me let I think me, it's like fault kind of uh, exaggerating the streams. Several hundred million false plays. Yeah. On Beyonce. Several hundred several hundred million fake plays oh, wow. on uh, Kanye West's Life of Pablo and Beyonce's Lemonade. So that's interesting. Um, I don't know the parameters of that. Are those several hundred million plays coming from like streaming forums? Or are they coming from other users and they just giving it to them? I don't know enough about that to speak on that. One thing I will say is that um, I'm kind of not championing for title, but obviously titles a a music streaming service that's owned by artists. I think it might be the only one. So um, in regards to that, um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know enough to speak on that, but it is encouraging to see a streaming service that's owned by an artist, especially a black artist. You know what I'm saying? So you know what's yeah, interesting about know. you know what's interesting about that too is like in this industry in general, right? And I think is that 
there are a lot of like for example title and it's owned by jay and that's dope right but it also you know when when a label is owning something or a person who's connected to a lot of artists it just creates a probably natural conflict of interest right because you realize the type of power that you could have in a, in, a, in an unregulated market um, that's not fully regulated yet, and so yeah, conflict of interest. That's there's going to be a conflict of interest for sure, and there's definitely. I think, be... I think so. So, but I think well, it's a conflict of interest. But yeah. at the same, I think it's a conflict of interest, definitely. Um, but I don't think it's a conflict of interest like um, to the parameters of uh, legal action or something that's that's being wrongfully done. You well, know I think it depends like on what a car company. Naturally, for sure, no, it's not. But there are different things that yeah. you can do. For example, if you're exaggerating numbers or if you're creating bots that are inflating the numbers artificially, then yeah. yeah then yeah. Specifically for artists that you're attached to, too, that's, that, yeah. that is a major problem. But Now, if it's the way that it's described in that article, I haven't seen the article, I just know about it from you speaking about it. If it's the way that described in the article that basically kind of just turned Beyonce all the way up, like I don't think that's right at all. I think that's, um, I mean, is it legal? You know what I'm saying? Is it taking food out of somebody else's mouth? That's what it is. Yeah. And I think it's it's not right. But I don't know enough about it to say whether they're doing right or wrong. I don't. I don't know. Right. I want to switch gears a little bit too. Um, obviously, we've been talking about streaming a lot, and you know, it seems like that's a way that a lot of that's the number one way that artists are getting paid right now through kind of sales right so you've had yeah 75 percent. so now if you've had you have to adjust your game according to you know kind of that right obviously you know most artists make a lot of their money touring and performing and then merchandising is a big thing but streaming has also become a big thing and so now Mm -hmm. you know a lot of us you know when we have these conversations about music and the music industry and what's happening and who's getting paid what we talk about it from the artist standpoint but the producers are, you know, most people know the producers are really the people behind what makes this music industry go. So a question I, I have for you is, what do you look for as a producer when you're looking for, uh, looking to collaborate potentially with an artist or kind of make music with somebody? What is it? What is? What are some of the things that you look for? So I'll just give you personal, um, just personal experiences so it could be a more vivid explanation. So like when me and you worked in the past, it wasn't, yo, send me a beat. Like send me the beat is like, like kind of taking a shot in the dark. Right. You know what I'm saying? But you sit down and work on music. We can figure it out. I can know where your head at. I can know where you're coming from. And then it's more of a collaborative effort. For right. example, um, just the past month and a couple months, I was work- I'm working with two different artists. I'm working with Chinese Kitty and I'm working with Mikhail. I'm extremely hands on with the stuff they're doing. So, um, for example, I just had Mikhail over here at my studio. Uh, maybe three three nights ago. And even prior to that, we were in the studio at his label, Cinematic. We were over there. And like the way me and him work is, it's extremely detail-oriented. Um, I understand the strengths of his game, and he understands the strengths of mine. I understand he likes melodies. So a lot of the times when me and him work, I'll just pull up a loop and let him record to the loop. And I can just bring his voice out afterwards in post-production with the drum. So that's just an example. But what I'm looking for when I'm working with artists are just somebody who I could just naturally catch a vibe with, you know? Right. When I say naturally catch a vibe, I'm going to break that down in detail because that's vague too. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, I don't have to force a conversation with you. It's not uncomfortable talking to you. We just have an unspoken chemistry. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, we could do a whole session without saying a word, but we'll be on the same page. Right. That's what I mean by naturally catch a vibe. So if that's there... Yeah. I can guarantee that the music will be good because it's like we're on the same way. We we are in the same wavelength. So mm-hmm. that's the first thing I look for. Um, obviously, 
well, that's not the first thing, but I look for if I'm interested in the music. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because I've been in this going on four years now, and I've worked with a lot of artists who I love their music, and I worked with some artists who I, I wasn't fond of the music. Mm-hmm. And what I realized, just for me in particular, that if I'm not really fond of the music, for some reason or other, the music doesn't come out, or it's just, you know, nobody knows about it. It's just whatever happens, happens to it, right. and it just never worked out for me. So my thing is working with artists who, one, really like their music, I believe in them. I see something in them. And, you know, having them believe in me and what I do and really appreciate what I do, it just makes a cohesive working situation to where if that's there, then I think the natural vibe is automatic. Right. And one other question, too, so, about that is is the is how much do you think about the the money, right? Because for artists, most artists, we we start doing this because we love it, right? It's it's We're passionate mm-hmm. about it. We're not thinking about the money. You know, for most artists who really, really care about this, we're not thinking about the money yeah. we're doing it. But then it does come a point where you start to realize, like, holy shit, this this is actually my career. I need if I'm going to continue right. doing this, I need to make money to survive. How much of that mm-hmm. actually creeps into your mind when you decide who you're going to work with or what situations you're going to get involved in? Um, to be honest with you, it does enter my it does enter my mind. I'll be like you know completely transparent. Mm-hmm. Um, if I'm going to invest my time, I have to know that there's a return. But that's not like a, um yo. How many streams this artist have? Like, if I believe in the artist, yeah, I I believe I make my I make my money off of the back end, off of the streaming, off of that type of stuff. Right. So, if I think an artist is dope and I want to work with them, I believe that I can make money off, you know, make money from working with them. But I'm not working with them to make the money. I'm working with them because I just think that shit is dope. But like I said, being an independent producer, artist, whatever, you have to have your mind on your money because you're not getting a magical check from in a mailbox from somebody. You know right, what I'm saying? Right. Like nobody's paying you. You have to pay yourself. You have to figure out ways to pay yourself. Right. Fund what you're doing, whether it's your team funding you or whatever it is. So I do think about the um and I'm well aware of the financial side of the game, front end and back end. Right. And if I'm not, then people on my team are so and, and I wanted to touch, I don't know, I know. I wanted to um, touch touch on that a little bit too, is <laughs> it seems like with all these things, the streaming, all the different revenue plays, publishing that this can be kind of complicated in figuring out how do I generate money for myself. And sometimes it can be overwhelming because it seems like some of this stuff is so complicated. Can you kind of speak to like your process and how you figured out, you know, the business side of this and, and the steps you took to make sure you understood that? Because I think a lot of artists now, they don't think with the free availability of free beats and, and, and everything. Yeah. They think they can just take a beat and publish it and put it on iTunes. But there's a lot of business consequences that you can face at the beginning and you can face later on when a yeah. song blows up and you weren't prepared business-wise for it. Um, so I'll give you just like a brief rundown. Like, So um, 2018, I was on Juice World's first album, um, Rest in Peace. I was on his first album. The single eventually, or the song eventually went gold. The album went platinum, right? So yep. during that period of time, Start, I started getting approached by a lot of different publishing companies. They start offering you amounts of money that are like, wow, okay, this is this is real. I'm I, I made it, or you know, I'm. It's like a sign of validation, like, okay, what I'm doing is working, and people willing to give me this. But, um, like I said, if I don't know it, I'm gonna speak to somebody on my team, or I'm gonna reach out to information. Mecca, you know this mm-hmm. personal experience. I'll ask you a million questions all day long, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna ask you a million more. <laughs> so, um, right. with that, it's like. Okay, if these people are willing to give me all of this money, it's something that's being purchased here. This is not a, it's not a, this is not um 
like congratulations. This is not a congratulatory gift. All right. This is a purchase. You're purchasing something. Now, what are you? What is the acquisition that you that you were that you were making? You know what I'm saying? What am I giving you in return for this money? And then when you when I actually sat down and looked at that, I felt like, okay, what they're trying to buy is this is this is this is discounted rate. This is great value price. This is Costco. You know, you get forty waters for three dollars. Like, right. you know what I'm saying? Like, right. this is what this is. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't what this looks like. Mm-hmm. You know, even something as simple as taking the number that that they give you and then dividing it by the number of years that the contract is. It's something simple like right. that. And I had actually did that. I'm not gonna call it A and R out because you know we have a good relationship and I understand they got to do what's in the best interest for the company, not for me because they don't work for me. So we take the number divided by the number of years of the contract. I know a lot of professionals and you know you publish people are probably like, no, that's totally wrong. Like whatever. Right. You divide that and you see what you're making is close to, you know, a manager's salary at McDonald's. Not to not to knock somebody working at McDonald's, but like, shit, if I'm going to give you ownership of my stuff, I might as well go work there. Right. And just keep ownership. You see what I'm saying? Right. So, um, yeah, figure, realizing that, and this is not me saying I'm against publishing. This is me saying, if you don't understand publishing, you shouldn't sign a publishing deal because essentially you're giving up something that you don't even, you don't even know. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, Understand it before you sign it. I'm not opposed to publishing. I would do a publishing deal, not in a traditional sense. It has to be something that I create and I feel comfortable with, and it works, and it's uh, something I just something I just I think is right. But so going from understanding that to understanding, you know, like literally going through the contract, question by question, asking the attorney, breaking it down, understanding where the points of ownership are. You know, why is this? Do they they have the leverage so they can say this and I can't say this? And that really understand that no contract is like, oh, this is the only contract we do. Nothing right. like that exists. No. You know, this is a wild, wild west. Like, That's 100% you can do, right. You can do anything out here. You know what I'm saying? So they can give you a million dollars for 10%. Like, it just, it's just, it's just, it's no bondage. So and speaking of that, that there's no bondage. Speaking of that, too, Mitch, first of all, I think you said a couple things that are important. One is just doing the research on your own. And V mentioned this. You can go to Google and you can find out a lot of information on your own. And filter out a lot of stuff. I think it starts with just understanding that you don't understand, right? So don't mm-hmm. uh, understand people getting excited, but you don't understand. Google research, and then obviously always have an attorney look over stuff before you sign anything. And like you said, these con- these contracts, there aren't, there is no such thing as a standard agreement. When people say, "Oh, this is our standard agreement. This is all we do." Well, you know how many times I've ripped up a standard agreement and had an agreement that was not a standard agreement. That's number one. Yeah, and then number two. Businesses are always changing. For example, I was doing um, a contract for someone um, looking over one. It was a reality show contract. And mm-hmm. it was, I think I might have told you this story before. And basically, what happened was after uh, the girl who, who did the skinny margaritas, she blew up on one of those reality housewife shows. Bethany Frankel, I thought yeah. was her name. And she came up with the skinny margaritas and they and made $30 million or something like that. And a lot of her platform. Yeah. That she used to market that was on the show, but the company who the network that she was on didn't receive any money from that. So after that situation happened, all of these networks with for reality TV shows started incorporating something that's basically called like a new business clause into their contract, where they basically essentially say anything that you that becomes big that you promote on our show. Now we essentially are going to get a five percent or ten percent or whatever the percentage is of it because we helped you. Get the marketing. We gave out you the there. platform. We gave you the platform, and that's something that you wouldn't wow. have seen 
in these contracts five years ago or ten years yeah, ago. Exactly. So th- again, exactly. that's that's just an example of how the, these industries are forever changing and why it's very important to all, also make, always make sure you understand it and to also you know consult an attorney. No one's gonna fight for right. you except for yourself, right? The streaming, exactly. the way the streaming money is broken down, like the only way that that's going to change is if the artists and producers and the creatives actually take the time. It's hard, right, for a lot of creatives to care about the business side of this, but what you don't, but when you'd rather care about it and invest the time in it than 10 years later go through what Taylor Swift is going through right now or even smaller artists where you felt like you deserved and earned a lot of money that you're not receiving because you didn't pay enough attention to the details. Yeah, and one one uh, one other thing too, we're gonna switch gears real quick before we let you out of here. Is we were talking, you know, talking about artists that you've worked with. Obviously, you've worked with huge artists, like I mentioned earlier, Lil Yachty, Juice mm-hmm. World, big names, Macadon. Hey, and you know, it's kind of like when you're an artist, you know, when you're growing up, you kind of have dreams of like collaborations, right? So for me. My, one of my big dreams was to collaborate with Bone Thugs and Harmony. I was able to collaborate with Busy Bone. You know, I wish I could have collaborated with Tupac. You know, like I have those type of dreams. Are there any artists out there that you, or even producers that you know, like would be a big, big vibe for you if you were able to work with? Yeah, it's two artists I want to collab with. Um, Buja Bantan, mm. uh, reggae artist. Yeah, I love Buja. Um, He's free Sizzla now, Kalanji. so you can do it. Yeah, Sizzla Kalanji is the next one. Um, these are people, I'm Guyanese, so I grew up, you know, in a Caribbean, in a Guyanese house. Right. Household, you know, everybody on my street was Caribbean. Right. The first music I'm listening to is Roots Reggae, and these are the artists who are like, I grew up as a child listening to, and they're my favorite artists to this day. So if I can collab with any artist, it'd be those two, and yeah, that'd be, Listen, that'd be that. if you ever collab with Buju, <laughs> let me know, because I will fly out on my own dime to get there to be in that <laughs> session, because that is one of my favorite. I still listen to Walk Like a Champion until Shiloh. I listen to all those songs still I'm, to this day. I'm going to put some pressure on, on, on Pesh to make that happen for you. Man, right. somebody got to make that happen, but I know, I, I know, I know it'll happen. That's one thing I do know. Yeah. I know that collab will happen, because... You know, something just just meant to happen. Yeah, those happen. are those are my two favorite artists of all time. Them, Garnell Silk, he's uh, passed, but yeah, those two artists. Right. Sure. Okay. And the last question I'll ask too is uh, let's talk a little mm-hmm. bit of football. I know Durant Grant, who played at Ohio State. I think he played for the Chicago mm-hmm. Bears. Um, in the XFL now. Yeah, that's your cousin. Yes, sir. That's your cousin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What? Yep. And that's you know, it's a good dude, man. So I know you had uh, you know experience with football. I know you played football. Growing up, tell us a little bit about your your football experience. Maybe anything funny with Duran, and we'll get you out of here on that. Um, man, I can't even start. Me and Duran got stories for days. Like you know, like I couldn't even start. But yeah, that's my guy. But uh, yeah, I was playing college football. Tore my knee up in six months, six seven, maybe no. I tore my knee up, and then a year later, I had a song come out with Yo Gotti called Mitch. So that's like my funny football story. Wow. Um, yeah, I was in college playing football. You know, on my way to the NFL, I had scouts looking at me, all of that good stuff. Blew my knee up. I text, matter of fact, I text Brian from Live Mixtapes, a uh, precious guy. He's an A&R at Live Mixtapes. I text him like, yo, bro, I need to win a game. I'm in the ambulance texting him this too. Like, I'm in the ambulance like, yo, my my ex-girl's there, my mom's there. I'm like, yo, bro, football's over. I need to win a Grammy. Two weeks later, I'm in Cleveland with crutches and a big-ass, um, excuse me, a big all-in-one desktop computer all of that, because I didn't have a laptop. <laughs> and started working with Rip Flames. You know, a couple months later, 
stuff with Yo Gotti came out, and it's just been you know kind of going from there. So it was almost like that knee blowout at that time seemed like the, the disaster, but it might have really been a blessing. Yeah, not, yeah. I, I mean, when it, when it happened, because I put so much work in just to get there, get, get myself to that point in my life, like transferring schools and all of that. Just I put so much work in when it happened. I was like, okay, I, I'm not living a bad life. I'm not a terrible person. I'm not doing wrong. So this can't be a bad situation for me. Like this can't be like, okay, your dreams is over with. There's nothing. Like I know there's something on the other end. This literally was going on in my mind. Like, okay, if this is it, this definitely is not the end of me because I'm not living wrong. I'm, you know, I. I'm living a good life. I'm living positively. I'm not wronging anybody. So I know something good has come out of it. And I kept that mindset. I mean, even to this day, if something happens, then I know that, you know, I'm living in balance with the universe to where whatever looks bad, it just really depends on my reaction to it. Right. And I actually wanted to talk to you a little bit about tennis. Um, your sister is a mm-hmm. professional tennis player. And I always yeah. talk about tennis as being one of the most most difficult sports um, for people to people to make it in. Um, yeah. and, and just wanted to have you speak a little bit about that. What Coco Golf is doing, obviously at, at her age is amazing. Um, but just, you know, working with your sister, I know you, you, you work with her as well and mm-hmm. she's a great tennis player, obviously, but just speaking to the difficulties of that sport and, and also like the success that, that, that she's found as well. Okay. So, uh, I kind of give you like a backstory on her. Um, my sister went pro at 14 which I know... Say her name. Like, Tell oh us her name, God. too, so everybody Sasha, knows. Sasha Vickery. Yep. S-A-C-H-I-A-V-I-C-K-E-R-Y. Sasha Vickery. That's my um, my little sister, my only sibling, mm-hmm. um, blood-related. So, uh, yeah, she went pro at 14, you know. Um, so what that really means is she forego amateur status and she started playing for money. Now, mm-hmm. the money is not like, you know, she started playing for hundreds of thousands. It's not how it works. Right. Yeah. Um, contrary to the popular belief. So it was just a... It was just a grind, and, you know, eventually she got better and better and, you know, worked her way up the ranks. Um, she got signed to a really big, uh, like, one of these, I guess, agencies. Um, that relationship didn't didn't work out as we thought it would. So she was, she went basically went independent, and I was representing her for about four or five years. So I did my first contract with her with ASICS, then the next contract, that I did with her was with Nike. The next one was Adidas, and then K Swift. And then most recently, she just um, she just um, signed over to another agent, um, basically for him to absorb all the responsibilities. Because obviously, like things are going in one direction with me, I can't do that and this, you know, with a hundred percent potential. So, yeah, it's the ups and downs, man. It's like you know, one year you might be seventy in the world, the next year you might be one thirty, but it's just that constant grind. And with her. She's been able to stay, you know, in a relative range for a long period of time, which is which is really unheard of. Like you either go straight to the top or you just like fall off tremendously. You might bounce back a little bit, but you always like, you know, you just you never really there. So she's been able to sustain herself around the same mark, which is a testament to her ability. It's just now, you know, cracking that seal, figuring out the things in her game that that really work for her and, you know, excelling. Everybody has different peak points. Coco Golf is doing Amazing. Shout out to Coco. Me and her dad are good friends. Um, and she's doing amazing. She's doing her thing. And I, I'm just happy to see, you know, like where tennis is going, especially with within the urban community. More people in the urban community are saying that this is another outlet um, of sports or uh, enterprise or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I'm just, I'm just happy for the game, really. Mitch, I got I got a question, too. The last question I'll ask mm-hmm. you on this. 
is <clears throat> kind of the, what we were just talking about with obviously with tennis. You know, V and I had had a conversation uh, many years ago uh, with Buster Douglas, basically when we were shooting a video, and he was telling us about the kind of the manipulation in individual sports, right? The manipulation in the politics of how you know people get oh, yeah. ranked and how people get pushed to the forefront. And, you know, like how there'll be a guy who's like 27 and 0, but like those fights are like some bullshit underground fights that were just set up just to mm-hmm. prop him up. Do you see that type of same politics and manipulation happening in tennis from your experience so oh, far? Of course. Yeah, like a lot. It's a lot of like underhanded like dealings. I think any sport where money is to be made is some form of manipulation. That goes from individual sports to team sports. But in tennis, um, it's a fair share of that. Like, you know, it's different tactics that players use to kind of rob other players of points or fake injuries on the court. It's just like, mm. it's a lot of, it's a lot of manipulation involved where you can imagine. And it's like, you know, certain, they, they call them, um, like when a, when a tournament, when it's a new tournament is happening or a tournament that's going on, you have like the, um, I forgot what it's called, basically a bracket and who's where in the bracket and who they playing against. Right. Like the draw comes out and some players just, they never get a fair shake in the draws. Like, their draw is always the hardest draw. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So, right. like, if you see that and you, and you believe that the draw is random, how can it be random if randomly I'm getting the toughest players every single time? Right. You know what right. I'm saying? Right. Like, it's a, you could see, you could, it's obvious. When you, if you just look at the game, you look at tennis and you look at the draws, it's like, okay, you know, this player's in this tournament, you know their draw is going to be, you know, that's going to be the death draw right there. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, there's a lot of that stuff that goes on, but I think, you know, inevitably, if somebody's destined to do something, it doesn't matter what draw you're going to put them in. They just got to find the, the mental fortitude to, to, push you know, to handle their business. Yeah. Right. All right. Last thing. Just tell, give us a little bit before we let you out of here. Give us a little bit of what we can look forward to from Mitch Mullah in 2020 and beyond. 2020, um, we just launched Win First Media. That's a branch of Win First Records. It's my, um, my company, my label, my independent label. Um, so Win First Media is, is an in-house studio creative space actually um when you called me i was just getting out of a meeting that we're having here with a videographer um kind of interviewing them talking to them about the layout so yeah when first media is launching in new york harlem upper east side whatever you want to call it um oh. that's launching this year a lot of dope content coming out a lot of new music coming out a lot of placements with some of your favorite artists some of my favorite artists i'm releasing my own music so it's a bunch coming out just you know, if anybody that is interviewed, just stay tuned. Follow me on Instagram. Actually, my Instagram is going to change. So just type in Mitch Moolah. Right now it's Mitch Moolah 92. I talked to the real Mitch Moolah last week, and he's going to give me just Mitch Moolah strength. This is Dope. for real. So, yeah. So just just, just stay tuned. That's what's up, man. Yo, thank Keep you. Keep grinding, man. Yeah, Keep grinding. Sure. Keep grinding. Thank you, bro. Hey, like I said, we're, fans, we're friends of yours, but we're also fans of yours. And obviously, we love the music that you produce and also your mental, the way you approach this game. I think it's very important. I think young producers and artists could learn a lot from you. So I think everyone, like he said, definitely keep following him and we will continue following his career. Mitch, thanks for joining us on the Pilot Boys podcast. Thanks for having me, bro. All right, man. All right, man. Have a good day. All right, peace. All right, V. Make a dawn in this. I'm feeling like a million bucks. Cutting up just for the money, we like nip and tuck. Uh, jet like Benny from the sand lot. Uh, cost 50,000 for my handcock. Ah, baby, baby. Riding to the top. Driving haters crazy. Never gonna stop. Uh, I'm feeling like a million bucks. Cutting up just for the money, we like nip and tuck. 
Love the Pilot Boys podcast? Support us on Patreon. Supporters can pledge as little as $1, and we have some cool perks on there. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash Pilot Boys podcast. Show us some love today. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast, episode 11. We have some news and notes, V. There's a lot of type, a lot of different types of things that are happening across the country. Let's talk about them. Let's go. So <laughs> one funny one. The National Weather Service warns of falling frozen iguanas in Miami because of the unusually cold weather. But they said that they might hit you, but they won't be dead. Is that a, <laughs> is that a global warming thing? What's going on right now? If you fear reptiles, that really sucks. But um, I don't know, flying igu- frozen iguanas. Yeah, I, I think when you go to Miami, you go there to vacation. I don't think, <laughs> I think one of the things that you're not worried about, you might be worried about hurricanes, you might be worried about... You know, humidity or our hot weather, but I don't think you're, <laughs> you're worried about frozen iguanas falling For on people your head. who are scared of iguanas, they're not going to hurt you, so don't worry. <laughs> all right, all right. Uh, college basketball. There was a brawl this week in Kansas versus Kansas State uh, basketball game. You know, it was basically like, it was stupid how it happened. Kansas was up by like 20 points. Uh, they were, you know, had the ball at the end of the game. We're going to run the clock out. The guy from Kansas State comes up and snatches the ball and goes down and tries to dunk it. And or lay it in, and the guy from Kansas sprints down and blocks the hell out of him, and then they get in each other's face. A brawl ensues. There's pushing. There's you know, a couple punches thrown. Maybe someone was holding up a chair. I hate to see that type of thing, you know, especially I mean, with college kids. And the hard thing here is their sports etiquette. The what triggered this whole thing is their sports etiquette. The etiquette. Sorry, etiquette. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slurring a little. You said bit. it twice. I was like, man, maybe he really. I promise, I didn't. I, I didn't have any Jack Daniels this morning. I promise. I promise. I promise. But there's etiquette that you said it three times. What the fuck? <laughs> what is happening? Yeah, yeah. It's this coffee. It's this coffee. Okay. There's etiquette that athletes are supposed to follow. That any athlete knows to follow like when when someone's running out the clock you don't steal the ball right and dunk it just like the person who's running out the clock if you're up 20 points you don't drive in shoot a three or hit a layup so So, yeah in terms of the confrontation i understand that but the fight itself obviously is completely unnecessary i hate i hate to see that type of stuff especially with college kids you know somebody made a joke i think it was I can't remember who it was. Somebody on Twitter was like, so are these kids going to get fined and suspended without pay? Or I was, like, <laughs> I was like, yeah, exactly. So pride is, a, pride is a disaster. Yeah, for sure. Um, some pop culture news, man. This one is kind of a little crass, but it's funny. Wendy Williams, she actually farted on live TV during her show. Literally, like, leaned to the side and let, <laughs> let one Look, go, and everyone heard it. Like, this, this is one of the things that I've never fully understood right if you sneeze you have to sneeze right Right. and you you say excuse me i've always felt like i've farted in public places plenty of times (laughs) if someone's sitting next to me i think i own it i say excuse me just like i would with a sneeze so i think the difference is is the first of all the the smell right or the perception (laughs) that there's going to be a smell of some sort like when you sneeze there are germs that do go in the air so it's like it is if you sneeze and don't cover your mouth or cough and don't cover your mouth that's gross as hell you know what i mean you're gonna get called out for it i think with farting people just think it's just no matter even if it doesn't stink it's just like the idea of it coming out of your ass it's it's actually a health risk to hold your farts in yeah so i've done a lot of research on this and and that's why i do what i do And if you're sitting on live TV for hours and hours and hours and you don't have the ability to get up and go to the bathroom every time, you know, you know, you might let one go. But, you know, there are also consequences if I, everybody hears it. I've heard about this in football where where guys 
pee their pants because they can't go to the bathroom. Oh, yeah. Happens all the time. That happens every game, probably every college game, every, yeah, squirt, you know, water bottles, all that type of stuff, you know. So it's kind of gross, but I think it was also funny. Um, Moving on, Wale, you know, I'm a big fan of Wale and... uh, you know, he held his NPR Tiny Desk concert. I love, I love those things, man. I think, you know, it's, it's crazy because music is so powerful and, you know, you see a lot of brands that are trying to gain access to the music industry. Like Red, Red Bull, for example, starting their thing. NPR has these concerts, uh, which you never would have guessed they would do something like that, but they, they're blowing up and they're pretty sweet. Well, what I like about, about them specifically is, you know, we're, we're living in a very watered-down time for music and it forces artists to be creative and shows them and create live performances showcase true talent. And I think that the tiny desk does that very well in a medium where you don't have to spend $50 or these days, a hundred plus dollars to go to a concert. You're seeing it live digitally. I think that's pretty awesome. Right. And I think, I think also for an artist, it also expands kind of your, expands your brand obviously, right. And your audience, but then also it makes you, challenges you to like do something different because it's not the same as being in a sta- in a stadium or on stage in front of five thousand or ten thousand people. It's like this small little tiny desk in a yeah. library looking space, and you have to really figure out how am I going to? You're not going to be able to jump around and run around and have thirty guys on stage. How am I going to make this thing captivating? And um, so it challenges the artists as well. And there's there's a reason why NPR is the gold standard in in broadcasting the way it is. Everything they do, they do well. Yeah. And they understand their audience very well. Right. A little bit of fashion news. Um, Off-White Jordan 5s are coming back next week. What do you think of that collaboration overall, of, uh, Off-White and, and Jordan? I think, like, again, you know, the Jordan brand already is exploitative <laughs> in terms of their prices. Uh, I read recently that the richest man in the world now is the CEO of Louis Vuitton. Um, wow. So... The exploitation that's happening here, it's even greater now, right? You partner with Off-White now, and you take a $160 pair of shoes and now charge 500 for them, mm. and kids are fighting to get them. Like, yeah. I, I can't believe how many people I see when these drops happen walking around with these shoes that I know can't afford them. Right. Um, and the pressure, that's that's my biggest concern there. Obviously, I'm a fan of fashion. Yeah. But, but I think these collabs are just huge money grabs that for sure. are, are, tro- are troubling um, and see, that goes back to a conversation we've had earlier in, in like a different context about exploitation and, and capitalism and just economics, right? And some people will tell you, listen, it's supply and demand. I don't give a, don't tell me that what they're doing is wrong, that it's straight supply and demand. And then the other side of it is like, well, there's also a human psychology thing that we understand, right? These companies yeah. study psychology and they figure out how do we manipulate the minds of people who are, you know, because at the end of the day, our minds are only so strong. And, you know, how do we create these these uh, phenomenons and, you know, how do we really <clears throat> get into the pockets of people who don't even necessarily have money? And they're doing it. I've seen shoes, 2000 4000 20 Somebody show me a pair of th- uh, shoes that are $20-something thousand. Tennis shoes. Too. Yeah, tennis shoes. Yeah. I'm like, you know, like you said, I'm a fan of fashion. But when I see that type of thing happen, it, it just I'm not ever going to buy a $20,000 pair of tennis shoes or even a $2,000 pair of tennis shoes. You can call me whatever you want to call me. I'm just not doing that. And also, I just don't, I don't get it because it's like part of fashion is having your own identity. And when these things happen, it's like you go out the day after the New Jordans release and everybody's got the same shoes on. <laughs> right. Like, I just never understood that. Like, why? why There's you- actually a social kind of um boost 
that people feel that they get when they actually yeah. have those things. Like it's just like getting the new iPhone, like the day it comes out, and you're spending a thousand dollars on a phone that does the, essentially the same things that your current phone does. But it's almost like some type of statement that you're making to the world, you know, when you go and get one. One of the funniest memes that I've seen in recent times is one of Jordan laughing. Um, saying you guys bought the same shoes from me again because <laughs> you know, they just re-release the same shoes it, it, over it, and over and over again, and every time they drop, people go crazy for him, and he's sitting there laughing like that's why he's a billionaire. Well, you though. know what? That, that gives me a, a good thought. And you know, speak, actually, we just talked about Wale. He's a huge sneakerhead. Maybe one day we'll get a sneakerhead on on the show to talk a little bit more about it because that, that's a huge booming industry that. If you're not in it, you don't know about it. But when you're in it, Stock that stuff X, is crazy. There's a, there's a trading platform like StockX that's super popular for, for tennis shoes right. now, too. Speaking of retail, 100 express stores across the country are closing due to declining sales. It seems like that's happening a lot. Macy's, I know, had um, a big shutdown. The brick-and-mortar industry um, for retail seems to be taking a huge hit, obviously due to probably online retail. But do you think there's something else involved there, too? I think it's again, goes back to human psychology. People are getting lazier and lazier. I mean, I literally went on Amazon the other day to order something, and I'm a Prime member, right? So they said that it could be there in two hours. Like <laughs> you're gro- Now they deliver groceries guaranteed in two hours. Right. So it's interesting. I just think that people don't like going out in public. They just want to sit. It, the future is in your phone and your laptop and your... Yeah. And that reminds me of the uh, comedy special that you just put me on to that we watched um, from a guy named Ronnie Chang on Netflix. If you get a chance, go watch that. It's hilarious. He speaks to this exact same issue. Um, Switching gears real quick, college football. Greg Schiano, former defensive coordinator at Ohio State, actually former head coach at Rutgers, went to the NFL a little bit. Now he's back at Rutgers, and he's been picking off some of these transfers in college football, uh, including a guy from Michigan, I believe, and then also Brendan White from Ohio State. What do you think that program is going to look like five years from now? Well, I think it's going to be about as good as it was when he coached there before, right? And they'll, they'll be a good competitive team. Obviously, they'll never be a a LSU, Ohio State, Blue Blood, but Shiano will make them competitive. And this transfer portal, I mean, he's he's being aggressive and taking advantage of it because he knows he's inheriting a team. And how do you recruit when you're inheriting a team is – yeah. Taking the best players from other teams. And the right? transfer portal is perfect for Greg Schiano. Like, literally, it's the dream. Because think about it. Where do these guys want to transfer to? They want to transfer to a place that has enough of a reputation, obviously a good reputation, and a place where they're going to play. Yeah. And the reality is, if you're a five-star kid or a four-star kid and you transfer to Rutgers, you know you're playing. You're not worried about uh, all these guys that you're going to have to compete with. And then you also have the reputation of Greg Schiano and the hype behind that. So you know that you're going to get some type of notoriety and that he has NFL connections. It's literally, the for Greg Schiano, this is like the perfect timing. And I'm really happy for for the kid, Brendan White, you know, know his family. Um, going somewhere where you're going to a coach that you know knew how to use you and make you shine, like, why would you go anywhere else, right? Well, I, hopefully, and with that Brendan White situation, I feel like there is, you know, more stuff to come that maybe we won't know for years. But the way that that situation kind of flamed out, flamed out at Ohio State is, is a mystery to me and to a lot of other people that I've talked to. Um, going from a guy who was, I think he was even the MVP in, in the uh, bowl game last year, yep. defensive MVP, and then he goes to, now he's not even really playing at all. And, you know, obviously new coaching came in, but I think it's got to be something more than that. 
hopefully one day we'll know what the real story is behind hopefully that. Hopefully he, he, he takes advantage of his talent in Rutgers and continues to, on to the next level. For sure. And last thing of news and notes, a random virus is, has hit Washington State. It's called the Wuhan coronavirus, the first confirmed cases in Washington. It's like, does that mean people are drinking too many Coronas? What the hell is that? I, mean, uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe it is coming from the beer. But one thing I would like people to do is not panic yet. There are only 500 cases and 7 billion people. So it's the number one news story. Well, everybody thinks the plague is coming back. Man. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I understand the fear and taking note when things like this come up. But, like, do not panic. Don't isolate yourself. It's okay. It's only 500 cases. I don't even know what the percentage of 500 out of 7 billion people is or 8 billion people now, but do not worry. Do not panic. Hilarious. All right. Well, that's all we have for news and notes. We will be right back. You're listening to the Pilot Boys podcast. Wrist watch, tip top, pockets on a milli. Give a toast to all my people. We like dilly dilly. Pilot boys staying fly, Super Bowl like Philly. When they ask me if I'm fly, I'm like, really, really. Three steps ahead, staying on the move. Don't listen to the gossip, it's barely ever true. Don't matter what you say, just matters what you do. They criticize the dawn, I'm like, who the heck are you? I'm feeling like a million bucks. Cutting up just for the money, we like nip and tuck. You're listening to the Pilot Boys Podcast. We are now here with Zach Smith, former Ohio State wide receivers coach, and now podcast host of Menace to Sports. Welcome to the show, Zach. Always a pleasure. Zach, Appreciate what's up, man? Nothing. Same old, man. Sharing some of this bubbly, sparkling water with you. We were just talking about it. It's, it's taking over the world. Yeah. Yeah. So one other thing that's about to take over the world is Kerry Coombs. Bringing back yeah. the juice. If he funny. hasn't already. Yeah, right? So it's, you know, late January, and, you know, here we are still talking about college football. Things are still happening. Obviously, Kerry Coombs is a defensive back coach for the Tennessee Titans. They just lost in the AFC Championship game. Shout out to them for a great season. He was obviously a former DBs coach at Ohio State. And there's always been a, you know, like people are calling it, it was the worst kept secret that he would be coming back to Ohio State. So first, before we get into some of the talk about what it means that he's back, what is his official title? There's been some discrepancy on Twitter. Yeah, um, I, I don't know what the discrepancy really is. I mean, he's going to be the defensive coordinator. I, the discrepancy really is on what the fuck is a title. Like, right. yeah. they, they give these titles, and, and we were talking about it before your show. Yeah. It's like, okay, the, Mecca Don is the defensive coordinator. Zach Smith is the co. You can't have one guy be a co defense and the other guy's not a co. Yeah. Right, right. That's, that's like saying right. I'm I'm the husband and that's the co wife. Right, right. Like what? Yeah. Right. But uh, so he he's the highest paid guy on staff. You can't pay a guy more money to be the assistant. He's making over a million dollars. Yeah, right? one I think one point four. They wow, said. Wow, that's crazy. And uh, the funny thing is, I saw the Columbus Dispatch. Shout out to them. Great uh, reporting. Announced he's the highest paid assistant in the history of college uh, Ohio State football. Wow. Which isn't true because Greg Schiano made one point five million like twelve months ago. <laughs> so they're confused. Hey, they're they're but, printed out of Indian Indianapolis now. We gotta cut them I'm, some slack. I'm sure there'll be a retraction. <laughs> but uh, yeah, he's a high paid guy, so he's the defensive coordinator. I mean, I don't know what they'll how they'll. And work he the, will coach the defensive backs as well, right? Yeah, and and I think I think Ryan really liked that that model where where you have one guy that's in charge of the secondary, mm. and then you have a guy that's the assistant secondary coach that's also the special teams coordinator. Right. And, and that's that's kind of the model that he used, and I love it. And I, we never had that at Ohio State when I was there, right. and I think it's awesome. So mm-hmm. I, I'm, Kerry, I think, will oversee the secondary, be the, the quote-unquote defensive coordinator, but it's a, it's a collaborative effort anyways. Right. So has he um, does he have experience calling plays if, if that is his 
So the the cool thing, no, he doesn't. Um, that, that's the short answer. The yeah. cool thing is, outside of spitting out the play call, every assistant coach has experience in recommending plays, in developing a game plan. I mean, I was a receiver coach, and uh, I call I, I, I tell the story all the time. I called plays one game. It was when Urban knew that Ed Warner was so bad of a play caller that we played Virginia Tech in 2015, the first game of the year, if you remember, the Braxton Miller spin move, right? Yeah. yeah. And we went in, and his his plan was that uh, Ed was going to call run run plays, Tim Beck was going to call pass plays, and when it came to third down, I called third down. It was the most fucked up situation ever. <laughs> right. But anyways, so so but everyone is involved in developing the game plan. You talk about all right when it's third and three to six as a defensive staff. Mm-hmm. What defenses do we like? Right. The whole staff will discuss it, analyze it, talk about it until you're sick of talking about it. Yeah. And then you'll come up with your three or four calls. Right. And yeah. then it's done. Right. It's literally like just pick one mm-hmm. and whatever yeah. one you want. And there's something to be said about a feel for the game and what's going on and who's playing well. But ultimately, it's like all right, we got these four things to pick from. You want to blitz or you not want to blitz? Right. Just pick. And yeah. and what makes Kerry Coombs so special? Because you know, knowing some of the guys, there was a significant. They felt like there was a significant drop off um, in the year between when when Coach Coombs left and Coach Halfley came in. And how important of a hire was this, considering Ohio State's branding as as BIA, the best secondary school in America? Bringing a guy like like that back, um, just to you know, you were there, you coached with him. What makes him so special and what makes him so important? So uh, the, 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 the most glaring thing that anyone in the world will tell you, anyone that's ever been to a practice or even just seen a clip from practice, he has the, he's the highest energy, energy coach I've ever been around. Juice! I mean, like the guy wakes up, at, like you'll go in for a mat drill, you get there at 4.30 in the morning as a coach, and you're like, oh, man, I got to get some coffee. And you walk in, he'll be like, what's up, Zach? How you doing? And I'm like, Jesus, I don't know, man. Let me get my coffee. Relax. He said, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, whoa. I mean, I, he, he wakes up with, I mean, he is high on life. Yeah. Uh, so his energy is through the roof. Yeah. He's also one of the finest human beings that I've mm-hmm. ever been around. Like I really, I mean, it, just in deep conversations that you have when you spend so much time with someone, he, I just always walk away like that is an in, like intelligent, insightful, deep, good person that yeah. I, that I want to be around. Right. Uh, and I think that permeates to his players. Yeah. You know, his the, players the, love him. They, yeah. He's authentic. Yeah. And he'll tell you like if he does something stupid, he'll be like, "Damn, dumbass, Kerry." Yeah, right. And he'll tell his players that right. that was fucking stupid. Right. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> right. I, should, we, I shouldn't have had you do that. Right. He's just authentic. Yeah. And and so players love him. He's also phenomenal at his craft, mm-hmm. at, at technique, corner technique. Yeah. I mean, he. I, I don't know that he was that when he got to Ohio State, but he was obsessed with getting better. Right. And he, I think he always is. Has been and, and, and is still doing that. Let me ask, ask you a question about that. You know, uh, it's just a small technical question, but I remember like V just mentioned uh, the year that he left, and then I can't remember who the the DB coach was that year before Halfley came. But one of the issues that people had, fans had, was that our DBs weren't turning around to look for the ball and locate yeah. the ball. How do you feel about that as uh, uh, as a concept? Do you feel like you know DB should be turning around and looking for the ball in the, the ball in the air, or so, does it just depend? So the the dangerous thing is there. There's one time when you should turn and look for the ball, and that's when you're in perfect coverage. Mm. Outside of that, if you turn and look for the ball, you're just going to create more separation. more separation. So to to say a blanket statement, they need to turn and look for the yeah. ball. No, they don't. Yeah, they better make sure they cover the guy. Yeah, but, it, but I think, like Marshawn and Gary on at that time, those guys were almost always in perfect coverage. Oh, so which, which that's why they would turn and they would pick off the wall. Yeah, right, know? or at least be a, a contested catch right. or a, a pass breakup. It was not some easy blind catch. Yeah. 
But um, so yes, of course they should. I think they when they interviewed Halfley, I think his first interview as the new secondary coach, they asked him that, and he like laughed. He was like, uh, "Yeah, we're gonna look for the ball." Right. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And people were like rejoicing. I think, like, I think oh my the, god, we're gonna look for the ball. <laughs> right. I think the second issue was um, the use of the trail technique in that year. Yeah. Uh, that, so they taught that. Kerry taught that too, mm-hmm. and it, it's uh, it's actually the hardest technique for a receiver to beat. Because the the lowest percentage throw is a deep ball over the shoulder. That, that's the lowest percentage throw, mm-hmm. right? So if you say we'll give you the position, now we're still gonna, uh, you know, try to contest that catch, right. but we're gonna allow you to have that position. Everything else you run as a receiver has now na- you're now at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Any mm-hmm. type of route that's not a vertical route away from the quarterback. So um, I think there's now we could talk forever about scheme. They're, they're not doing that. They're playing more off coverage, more zone with some underneath help. So there's two different ways to do it. Um, Kerry, when, when he was at Ohio state, it was a lot of press man, a lot of trail technique, but they were in great position. Mm -hmm. And then when phenomenal players, and you know what he was so good at, he was so good at breaking down the routes that, that receivers run week to week Mm. so that those, those corners. And I'm talking about, we used to have to put in routes just to beat them in practice because they would know, all right, once he hits 16 yards, there's no route in the playbook except a vertical. Mm. So they would play every route until 16, and once they and they knew where they were. Once they hit 16, the burners were on because they were covering a go. Right. And so they may be in trail, but by the time the ball hit at 35, 40 yards, they were back in perfect position. Right. He's just he's a he's an expert, man. He's he really is an expert at his craft. So another thing I want to talk about too about Kerry is that you know when people talk about coaching hires, a lot of times the the hype will be about. Uh, you know, how good of a coach he is. But then the people who are like kind of who really study this thing realize that the job is bigger than that, right? So oh, recruiting, yeah. for example. And Kerry, you look at his imprint in Ohio, being a former uh, high school coach in Cincinnati, being from Cincinnati, obviously coaching five first-rounders in the, his first five years, I think it was, at Ohio State, going to the NFL, having this, and that now being back. What is the recruiting impact that Kerry Coombs is going to have for Ohio State? He's such a unique recruiter because he's uh, what Urban used to always call an old stiff white guy, mm. which is <laughs> which Urban used to say that as like a like that was a, a flaw. Like don't and, be an old yeah, stiff don't white don't guy. be that. And Kerry yeah. like. I used to, because I was the opposite. I was like younger. I, I could relate. I listened to the same type of music. Right. You know what I mean? Right. And so I would get kids on the phone with him, and he he would always like make. He was so genuine that he would make jokes that he was old stiff. Like he'd be like, right. "Hey, who's this Meek Millie guy?" You know what I mean? <laughs> Shit like that, where kids would laugh and they're like, right. "I like this guy." Right. You know what I mean? Right. Like you don't you don't have to be someone you're not, yeah, but yeah. you just you got to be authentic and show that you know who Meek Mill is. Right. And he would intentionally say his name wrong. Right. To be funny, yeah. you know. Yeah. So he's he's. He's excellent. And what, what recruiting comes down to a lot of times is just time. Yeah. How much time you spend and how genuine are you in the process? And he he spent more time than anyone, and he was as genuine as anyone. So that's why right. he was so successful at it. Right. And, and what role do you think, you know, obviously Coach Coombs left to go to the NFL. Like, again, this showcases the power and the belief people have in Ryan Day. Obviously, it's a lot of money too. But to go from a position, advance – and kind of realize, hey, this is my identity. I want to come back. You know, that doesn't seem like an easy sell. How do you think Ryan was able to do that? I think Kerry Combs wants to be a head coach in college. That's that's what he wants to be. He lo- He's a high school coach at heart. Mm-hmm. He loves the de- like player development, the character development, things that in the NFL you might do a little bit, but ultimately you're a business. Yeah. And I think uh, that was his ultimate goal. And I think he left Ohio State because he wasn't getting that promotion to be a coordinator, you know? Right. It was uh, bring in Greg Schiano, bring in uh, Chris Ash, bring in, bring in, bring in. And, it, and that was Urban's – that's what he did. Right. But uh, so Kerry felt like he – 
one, he wanted to coach at the highest level to say that he did. Mm -hmm. And two, by doing that, now he's more attractive to either a head coaching position or to secure a D coordinator spot. Right. So I think he makes this move back because one, he loves college football mm -hmm. more than anything. Yeah. And two, ultimately, and that his trajectory is is head coach now. Yeah, that, done. It's like it's to, over. To be honest, if if Ohio State does well on defense this year and maybe the year after, he'll be the head coach at Cincinnati as soon as Luke Fickle gets a huge job, right. which he's going to get. Yeah. And and that was, I think that's the ultimate goal. He right. loves Cincinnati, uh, the queen city, he always used to say. So. Right. So let me talk about, real quick, about Ryan Day. Uh, because, you know, one of the things I posted on Twitter the other day, and there's a lot of reaction to it, was Ryan Day's transition has been seamless, right? It's like he essentially kept the same program. This is kind of what I said. He essentially, like, we have the same program, but he's an entirely new head coach with his own style, and but there's so much continuity. It's so rare to see that type of thing, and I feel like part of it has to do with, you know, obviously his relationship with Urban, and but also and him believing in a lot of the same philosophies. Like, it seems like I don't really – you don't really see that that often. When somebody new comes in, you don't see things that are – basically everything is pretty much the same. Like Pantone's still there, yeah. and now Coombs is back. Like Larry Johnson's still like all, a lot of the same pieces are in play. How do you feel about that? You know what? I th I, and and I, I said this analogy to someone, and, and I, I think it's a great analogy for what Ryan Day did. He was uh, obviously, one, he has the talent and the skill to be a great head coach. Mm -hmm. But what happens is a lot of times is these head coaches, it's, it's like uh, you think about like a, a machine that outputs a product, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas the head coach is standing there looking at the product coming out saying, I like this, I like this. Mm -hmm. But then you have the guy that's back there working in the machine and he sees all the parts and everything and, and a couple things that might not be great and might be great and this is why it's so great. And, and so Ryan had all that perspective. Mm -hmm. And so the minute he takes over, it's like, all right, we need to get – we need to change the entire defensive staff, but I have to keep Pantone. I have to keep Mick Marotti. I have it's like all the the aspects of the program that were just made it great. Yeah. He kept it and enhanced it. And then yeah. the things that needed changed, he knew immediately because he was on the streets, you know? Yeah. He was in the fight. He was there. So he it was not like some coach coming from an, another program no. and having to figure it out. He was actually able to see it work in real yeah, life. Yeah, it's just like if you and your friends are hanging out, like you know which one of your friends kind of a shitbag. Right. But yeah. when your parents come around, he's like, hi, hi, how are you? <laughs> right. it's, it's like, right. that's the head coach. Right. When the head coach comes around, that's the best version of that guy. Right. But as an assistant, you might kind of know he's not that good at mm. whatever. So I, I think he identified the problems or, or the deficiencies, fixed them, and now you're looking at, surprisingly, probably an enhanced program from before he took over, which is wild. Yeah. Right? So one of the most impressive things in observing him, obviously I don't, I don't know him very well, is that in, in you look at the landscape of coaching, ego gets in the way, right? Like just his recognition of saying, it's not going to hurt my reputation to follow some of these things that Urban did before that I knew that worked. A lot of coaches come in and they need to immediately put their imprint on the program. We're going to change this. We're going to change that. It seemed like he's like, if it's not broke, why fix it? Yeah, I, that I, I joke about it all the time in conversation. But every so I, I was with Urban for whatever twelve years. So I saw I don't know seven head coaches go on and take, take you know start a program, take over a program, right. and and almost every one of them would in, in conversation, casual conversation, be like, bro. This is crazy. Like it doesn't have to be like this. You could do it different and still win. But and they bitch about the program. Mm. Every son of a bitch that left, core values the same, program run the same. They did it exactly <laughs> right. the same right. way right. because yeah. it works. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think Ryan ultimately just wants to be successful. Yeah. And so if it worked, 
we're going to use it. If he if he didn't like it or thought something could be better, he'll tweak it. Yeah. You know? And the no- thing I like I like about him is that he's you know, he seems to be authentic. The players love him. When you talk to them, he's he is who he is. He's an intense guy, but he's also a guy that'll joke around with them and and make them re- remember that this is also supposed to be fun. And so it's it's interesting to watch this thing. When, and speaking of the players, one of the questions I wanted to ask, transition to a little bit is uh, these postseason games, Senior Bowl, you know, NFL, PA, Collegiate Bowl, all these other bowl games. And I wonder how much of an impact you feel like these games have for these players, or if is it is it just another money grab, like you know, Reese sponsors, you know, is it just another corporate money grab, a network money grab, or do they actually, you know, enhance? the value of the player. And then I guess the other, the, the second part to that is do you like when people ask you, how do you determine whether you recommend whether these guys play in these games or not? Yeah. I, I think it's all about uh, what is your projected value? Like what, what, and, and, and a real conversation with what is your actual value, mm-hmm. you know, because there's perceived value and actual value. Right. And so the one thing about Ohio state, and it's been this way uh, as, since I got there and it still is this way today, uh, specifically the receiver position there's so much talent on the team that a lot of times guys don't have this illustrious career or year mm-hmm. that maybe they're capable of because there's 17 million other great players. Right. And you look, I mean, ask Terry McLaurin how much value is in the senior bowl. Mm-hmm. I don't know, millions of dollars right. for him. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he went from probably a late round draft pick. People were saying he was a special teams player, yeah. not really an NFL receiver. Free to an agent all, even. Yeah, right. an all rookie receiver yeah. and killing it. Yeah. So, um, and you're watching it now, KJ Hill. Austin Mack, Ben Victor, just killing it at these at these yeah. these um, whatever senior bowls or these all star. I don't know what you showcase call them. Showcase games, yeah, showcase games, them, yeah. right? And so on the other side of that, it's Joe. If you're Joe Burrow, what's right. my actual value? I don't know, but it, your perceived value can't go any higher. Right. So just go sit, right. hang Why out, her? right? Right. Go to Jeff. Yeah, so I use at Jeff Ruby's Steakhouse and get a steak named after you. Yeah. Why go to the senior bowl? Right. Right. Yeah. And so you're. It's really the guys that 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 have something to prove or want to show they're better than maybe their their per- perceived value. Right. And I think also one thing that that I've heard is like if you are an under under the radar kid, you're going to these games and often getting seen by scouts, getting coached by NFL head coaches, so there is value um to me in that experience more so than a lot of other things that college football does. Um, I think these these games do what you want is opportunity to sell yourself or interview, right? right? And you get a whole week, oftentimes with NFL head coaching staff or a great head coaching staff that then can go speak to you when it comes to draft time. Right? Well, there's also out of sight, out of mind type thing, right? Yeah. It's like what or what have you done for me lately? And yeah. this, these are the most recent things that you know scouts have a chance to evaluate in, in terms of actual game, quote unquote, game film before the combine. And then, like you said, specifically for you know certain players that. You know, like the Ohio State wide receivers is the perfect example because last year I remember the Senior Bowl and people talking about Terry was just killing people. Killing people. And he was doing stuff that I think a lot of the nation didn't realize that he could do. Ohio State fans knew, but they a lot of the nation didn't realize it. And then same thing that's happening now with Benjamin Victor. He goes there, and at Ohio State, he wasn't even really the maybe a top three guy. But amongst those guys, he's like the you know the best, and he's killing it. And KJ is, you know, he was always great, but he's also showcasing his skills. And Austin, same thing. And for Austin, a guy like Austin, who we all know how good he is. Oh, yeah. And the people who really, really watch know. But, you know, he's been nicked up here and there. So now he gets another chance to show, you know, his game film. 
And then I guess another question I ask is the combine, right? Like, yeah. How what what are your perspectives on the combine? You know, it's it seems like it's a meat market, and 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 it makes me uncomfortable sometimes watching it. To be honest, because I'm like, these guys are getting poked and prodded, and like they're like. You know, like indentured service. Interrogated or some shit. too. Like, yeah. Interrogated. Interrogated, asking them questions about, you know, personal shit and stuff like that. What what's your perspective on the combine? Obviously, you know, guys get make millions of dollars as a result of performing well there, but it just feels it feels weird sometimes. Yeah, I mean it's uh, I can see both sides of it. I think it's designed that way on purpose. Yeah. It's it's I mean, they they put those kids through just a gauntlet. They're of trying shit. to weed you out. And, and and what they really do is they set you up with an eight hour day before you ever test anything or do do anything. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, all right, we're gonna test your toughness and, and and give you a little adversity here and see if you can still go run a four three. Right. It's like if you wake up fresh, eat a good breakfast, stretch and run a four three, okay, cool. Now we're going to really fuck with you. Right. We're yeah. going to put you in meetings and all this just drudgery yeah. and awful shit. Yeah. Eight hours of it. And then when you go out there, you're like, I'm exhausted. Right. Now what do you run? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of football, right? Yeah. After no one, okay, the first quarter, you're really fast. How are you in overtime? Right. You know, so it's it's by design. I don't really like it. I yeah. think it's it's kind of, like you said, you're poked and prodded. Right. And, but it's by design and people make a lot of money off of it but and, and i think a lot is exposed yeah i mean paris campbell's one of the toughest kids ever and he goes out and runs probably the best time of his his career right. Curtis Samuel the same and it's yeah. like they showed yeah whatever you can do whatever the fuck you want to me i'm still gonna show up right yeah I'm, and i'm gonna perform i mean and you see like they miss sometimes too like these tests and the way that they test like your 40 time straight line speed doesn't necessarily determine your football speed no, right I, like yeah, for sure i think if if Mike Thomas is the the best example, right? His oh, yeah. his draft rating and where he got drafted. Now he might be one of the greatest receivers to ever play the game, but they probably missed on him because he probably didn't test well in certain things that at the end of the day doesn't don't really matter all that much. Like yeah. we put so much stress on these forty times, and I think and, I think that that all gets into the politics of the NFL and how decisions are made. I, I think that if you let football coaches make decisions. At every organization, that would that number of misses would decrease dramatically. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get a bunch of nerds, GMs, owners that just want a guy because he's popular. Right. And not that Joe Burrow's not great, but if let's say he wasn't as good as advertised, mm-hmm. I promise you there'd be ten owners that are like, "No, we're taking Joe Burrow. Right. I don't care if you like him." Right? Yeah. It's like, right. all right, who's deciding now? Right. The, yep. the CFO. Right. Okay, that's really smart. Speaking <laughs> of the NFL, too, um, one of the things that we've you know been watching is Patrick Mahomes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess as a, as a wide receivers coach, you could probably appreciate this a lot, who your quarterback is a lot of times. Actually, talk to us about that for a second. Before we talk about Mahomes specifically, how do you, how does, how does the, who the quarterback is factor into your game planning or your kind of preparation with your receivers? Because it seems like, for example, we all love JT Barrett. This is not a knock on JT, but there's a difference between JT Barrett and Dwayne Haskins. In terms of even probably how you know the things that you would teach, like where's the ball going to be, oh. what routes you run, all that type of stuff. How Night does that day. factor in a little bit? Night and day. I mean, it, it was. Uh, uh, you, you have to. You have to as a receiver coach. You have to adjust your entire everything you coach, teach, um, because you have a guy like Dwayne Haskins, and you're teaching 
how to protect the spot that he's going to throw in. Like ball placement is going to be key. So how to give him the window to throw that, have that ball placement. A guy like JT Barrett needs you to, he needs to see you more open. So now you're teaching maybe slower developing ways to get more open mm. in a route where Dwayne Haskins is all about timing. It's like, he doesn't need you that open. He just needs you to be in this spot with the proper leverage and, and just protect his throw. Right. So you change, you change everything yeah. entirely. And it, and it seems like just what you said with, with, Patrick Mahomes, his ball placement seems to be. It seems like this guy can put the ball anywhere. It's unbelievable. He wants to in uh, unconventional ways, like yeah. uh, like body position where you're like, that's fucked up, and you're yeah. like, Jesus, that's perfect. Right, it's wild. I, it's, how does he? How does someone like? How does someone develop into that? Is it? Is it? A lot of it just natural talent. That's divine just, intervention. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, certainly he's worked hard at it. Um, but a lot of people have worked hard mm-hmm. now, and not not a lot of people can do what he's doing right now. Yeah. yeah. One of the things that Tony Romo said was obviously. One of a phenomenal analyst. Oh yeah, um, he said that. Well, he noticed in watching Patrick Mahomes is that he doesn't even watch his own receivers. That's how good he is. Like yeah. he just watches the DBs, and that's how he determines where he's going to throw the ball. He's not even paying attention to his receivers. Is that normal for great quarterbacks, or is that Oof. something that's fairly unique to him? Um, I, I, I think the the best ones can move defenders with their eyes by, by giving them attention, looking at them, doing things with their body mechanics. Um, the, the, all, the all-time greats, Peyton Manning, I mean, I, I've seen clinic after clinic on how he'll move a guy and twitch a guy to throw a different guy. Mm-hmm. But they eventually look at the receiver. And it's like <laughs> yeah. Patrick Mahomes has like eyes that we can't see right? because he does. Like they'll show his face and he never looks at the receiver. Yeah. Ever. Like not even like as he throws it. Yeah. And somehow it still hits his left shoulder, and you're like, "How? Right. Like yeah. it, right. it doesn't make physiolog like yeah. biological sense. It doesn't make sense." Right. And, and the so. and the structure of this offense, right? Like you're obviously being a receivers coach to have like they have so much talent, you forget about people, right? Right. They got Sammy Watkins, Tyreek Hill, Hardman, who all run sub four four forties, right? Yeah. And then you have underneath you have the best tight end in football, yeah. in Travis Kelsey, and a running back. They can catch the ball, but how much of this is also the design of this offense being perfect for a guy like Mahomes? Because it seems like right off the bat, they're able to stretch the field with their three receivers. Kelsey's almost always open. The running back is almost, is this just an offense that's impossible to defend based on the skill? Um, that, I mean, nothing's that, impossible, but when you, it's like, was LSU impossible to defend this year? Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. I, it's just when you have a quarterback that is, Hitting on all cylinders with the skill around him that Mahomes has right now, it's like I. If anyone could do it, I guess the 49ers might be able yeah. to. Mm-hmm. I, you got to get home. The you got to get to him. Right? Get to you got to get, get to him. They can get to him, right? I mean, and that's Nick Bosa. What he's doing is unbelievable. Like unbelievable. I think this typically you don't really. Well, maybe sometimes you do, but a lot of times you don't see this matchup, which is essentially these are probably the best two teams in the NFL I mean, all the season, right? Uh, one is basically the offensive juggernaut. The other one was a defensive juggernaut. With talent on the other side of the ball on both, how do you see actually this game? Like how how do you slow down Mahomes? And is Nick Bosa and that defensive line the answer? The real problem with with the Chiefs that I've seen, and not the problems with them, but the problem with playing them is you can stop them for three or four quarters, mm-hmm. but if you have a couple bad drives, Mahomes will go. He went for five touchdowns in the second quarter of the other game. That's how Golden yeah. State Warriors used to be. Right, it's ago. like you yeah. you're gonna have to shut him down. The entire every second of every minute of the entire game. Right. There's no way you could be like, oh man, we we really started fast and shut him down, and they kind of got theirs, and then we shut him down later. It's like, no, no, no. Then they just scored forty points. Right, right. Like just that little blip of not shutting them down. Yeah. They put up forty. Yeah. So I, 
I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't know how you could. And stop he can tuck him. the ball and run too, and that's the other thing that's yeah scary. But I mean, that 49ers D line though, I think we're underestimating that this probably is one of the deepest and greatest <laughs> defensive lines in recent history. Crazy. Like it's not just Bosa; it's D Ford on the other side. They've got like three other first round picks. The guys They're on loaded. the interior, they're loaded, right? So, and, and Richard Sherman's balling. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He is. You know, that that's uh that game is going to be a big one. Like I said, I think a lot of times you don't really see the two kind of best teams playing the Super Bowl. That doesn't always happen, or some team will go on a run like the Titans were trying to do. But these were kind of the two best teams, I think, for for their division. So I think it's going to be an interesting game. And the reality is that you know uh, we talk about the Chiefs' offense. I think San Francisco has a lot of talented players on their offense as yeah, well. They do. Garoppolo's growing into his own, but you have, you know, Emmanuel Sanders, you have Debo Samuel, and then the running backs, like Raheem Mostert is a stud. I've been talking about him for the last three years. V knows that. And they have they have like speed guys. They have all their running backs run four three. Yeah. Or you know, Brita, all those guys run four, 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 three. So I think it's gonna be a fun track meet. I don't I think it's gonna be an interesting game. I mean, it's gonna be one of the most more intriguing Super Bowls we've seen in seen in a while yeah, it's gonna be awesome to watch yeah no thanks zach that was great thanks for joining us on the pilot boys podcast make sure you guys check out zach smith's podcast menace to sports you can stream it or download it anywhere and also follow him on social media instagram and twitter at coach zach smith that's all we have for today's show big thanks to our guests mitch mula and zach smith thanks to everybody for listening don't forget sharing is caring subscribe to the pilot boys podcast on apple spotify patreon and youtube and please follow us on social media at Pilot Boys Pod on Twitter and at Pilot Boys Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And don't forget to follow the hosts on Twitter. I am at Mechadon Music and V is at Viswant. Always remember, be you, you is fly. Pilot Boys out! Pilot Boys in. Pilot Boys, we get on up. We gon' fly, boys, we get up. Once we get on up